It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Our theme for today is the compressed and intense Israeli high holiday season, the nine days which begin with Holocaust Memorial Day and end with Memorial Day for our fallen soldiers and Independence Day. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, We'll be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. In Israel, the high holiday season is upon us. Not Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, of course, but the secular Israeli version of the Amin Noraim, our modern days of awe in which we relive the experience of destruction and homecoming. The trajectory begins with Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. Then a week later, we experience an even more immediate day of national mourning, Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day for our fallen soldiers, the day of deepest grief on the Israeli calendar. And then no sooner have we relived the national trauma of parents bearing children that we are thrust into the joyful celebration of Independence Day. The emotional juxtaposition of these days is dizzying, even overwhelming. What is the emotional impact of that relentless experience of grief and celebration? What impact does it have on us as individuals and as a society? What is the ethos, the values that the Israeli calendar is trying to teach us? Are these days secular? or in some sense religious. We tend to take our spring high holiday season as a given, as though it were divine revelation. But we created this calendar and we impose this emotional cycle on ourselves. And so perhaps it's time to ask the question, is the intensity necessary, an unavoidable expression of our reality today in Israel and as a people? Is juxtaposing grief with joy an expression of Jewish values? Or do we pay an excessive price for the emotional roller coaster of our modern Israeli vision of the high holidays? On a personal note, we are a form of what in America is termed a gold star family, mourning my brother-in-law who was killed in the first war in Lebanon. My sister has never been able to celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut since, and this year it's 39 years. Yossi, hi. Hi, Daniel. It's wonderful to be with you again. This is an important, heavy, and complicated topic. Before getting into specifics, does the high holiday season of Israel have meaning to you beyond the meaning of each individual day? 
we're now actually in the midst of it. How do you feel in the midst of all of this? Daniil, before I answer, I'd actually like to put the question to you, because my family, we've been fortunate to be spared the experience of mourning a, a fallen soldier. So far, God willing. I really would love to hear from you what these days are like for your family. I know that your family was totally transformed by the experience of losing a son, son-in-law. What does it mean for you? What does this roller coaster do in your family? It's a tough question, Yos. 39 years is a long time. When we go to the grave and we see and meet his classmates or the people who are with him in the army, one of the strangest things happen. Every year, it's glaring. They're getting older, but he's still 32. That's the only picture we have of him. You know, what would he be today? He'd be 71. Our Aral is 70. In our eyes, he's 31 or 32. That's it. It's just this strange, there's something jarring. 39 years is a long time. The morning is not the same. For my sister, it still is. On a national level, you know, when somebody dies, it's the most personal. It happened to my sister. It happened to her kids. It happened to his parents. You know, his father ultimately just died. His heart broke first. And that was it. He could never uh, recuperate. You know, and then in different concentric circles to my parents and to us, to lesser degrees. While it is an unbelievably lonely experience, the juxtaposition to Yom Ha'atzmaut makes it less lonely. There's something about the country not forgetting, which as a mourner was very, very powerful. When the country says everything we have is because of you, and thanks to you, that's very, very powerful. So Yom Ha'atzmaut is screwed, it's true. I hate the connection between Yom Ha'atzikaron and Yom Ha'atzmaut. Memorial Day and Independence Day. But I love the connection between Yom Ha'atzmaut and Yom Ha'atzikaron. Does that make sense, Yossi? Totally. I was also thinking that we have it backwards, that to expect families that are reliving their mourning on Memorial Day, and then to immediately that night go into a simulated celebration. There's something cruel about it. It's almost a form of emotional torture. What if we did it in the reverse way? Think about the trajectory of these three days. Holocaust Memorial Day, we mourn the consequences of powerlessness. Independence Day, we celebrate power. And then, on Yom HaZikaron, we mourn the consequences of power, the price of power. There's a different rhythm to it. That's beautiful. See, but what you've just done, as I listen to you, you've completely changed the national ethos. And I think maybe what you're saying is the next stage of the national ethos. You know the craziness? It's as if you're supposed to be able to emotionally disengage. Do you remember when we were soldiers? Yes. It's not about you, stupid. <laughs> we're drafted into this larger cause, this larger purpose of, even if it's not Tovla Mutbad Artseinu, which was that old ethos, it's good to die for our country. I remember I was willing to die for the country. I was. And I was trained. When I made Aliyah and I was a 13-year-old, I was trained by the society through constant subliminal messaging that you have to be willing to die for this country, that we will only have a country if we're willing to sacrifice. And I'd almost say to you that the country is saying to you, it's hard for you? Well, suck it up. Welcome to Israel. And what you're saying is a 2021 experience where now I don't need that disconnect. Yom HaZikaron is the price we pay 
It's not the necessary foundation of the country. That's the shift that you just made. Did you notice that, Yossi? No, I didn't, but I like that a lot. For me, I thought that when I was drafted, that that was the moment I became an Israeli. But when my son was drafted, I realized that that actually, that was the moment. And everything you're saying is right about the willingness to sacrifice, but there's something even more extreme that we all take for granted, and that is our implicit willingness to give over our children to this story. The only way that emotionally I can justify having made the decision to move to America, raise a family here, well, that's not, no, it's not the only way, but it's a big piece of it, is to think of it in terms of Yom HaShoah. And coming from a survivor family, it was unbelievably moving to me that in one generation, we had gone from, from my father's experience to, to I'm wearing a uniform that has a tzadi, a hay, and a lamed on it. Your father to survive had to dig a ditch and hide in a ditch. And that was the highest form of heroism that was available to him, was that he was able to flee the Nazis to survive and bring two friends with him to a hole in the forest. And here I'm being given a gun and I'm being given an, a uniform. So emotionally, the connection between my family being ready to make these sacrifices had this wider context. And, you know, I, I've become, as I know you have, very wary over the years of making an explicit link between Shoah and, and Israel. I don't like it. I don't think it does us any good in terms of our national identity. It's not healthy in terms of how we project ourselves. And I've heard you say this a lot and that your father said this, actually. We shouldn't be taking visiting dignitaries on their first day to Israel to Yad Vashem. We should take them to the maternity ward at Hadassah Hospital. That's what Israel's about. Emotionally, I am there completely. And yet, when it comes to the defense of the country, do you know, I'm going to say something really terrible now, especially to someone who comes from a, a mourning family. But from my perspective, coming from a survivor family, we lost more Jews in three days in Auschwitz than we did in all the wars and all the terror attacks in the history of Israel. When I think of defending Israel and the price we pay, I'm really, emotionally, I'm really thinking of it as a child of survivors. Hearing you talk, I think there's a beautiful distinction that you were making. And it's not a distinction between the emotional and the intellectual. It's both intellectual and both emotional at the same time. That on the one hand, there is no connection between Israel and the Holocaust. And on the other hand, we can't disconnect them. It's just, does it make sense? I don't know. Like here, speak to me. Israel is the right of the Jewish people to a homeland. Israel is, you know, it's, we don't want to build our national return to power on victimhood. It puts us in such a terrible place. And, but at the same time, emotionally, it's not that Israel is the antidote. or is, I hate it when people say that Israel is the answer. It's not the answer. But when you put the two together, 
the sense of powerlessness and the sense of the ability and the dignity to protect, how could you not put them together? So it's emotionally, it just is the most coherent thing in the world, as long as you don't talk about it. It's like, you know, it's, like, it's when you want to start talking about it, that, oh my God, do we really want to build our national rebirth and the narrative of the Holocaust and what happens when we become a nation and our core instinct is the world wants to kill us. That's our reality. And you can see where it could go. And it, but at the same time, we're stuck with it because you can't get, it's just there. But you see what you're saying, really. It is one more Israeli paradox and among many. But what I hear you saying, Daniel, is that we created Israel because we need a sovereign space for our renewal. This is the place in which the Jewish people in a modern secular era can create multiple expressions of our Jewishness that make sense in the context of modernity. This is the best strategy for preserving and, and nurturing Jewishness. But where the Holocaust comes in is not, maybe in a way that it did in the early years of the state, it's not this grim determination, here we are, we can fight again. We know we can fight. We've proven that over and over again. If anything, the world thinks we fight too well. But where it does come in, I think, is in the dignity of our ability to defend ourselves. When Yom HaShoah precedes Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut, it's not that you shouldn't forget the Holocaust necessarily, but never forget what could have been or what was Jewish destiny for so long. It's not that Jewish life is not endangered in Israel. For many Jews, this is the most dangerous place for Jews to be but the remarkable dignity that Israel affords us. I remember feeling it, you know, I, I don't use one eye and they wanted to make me a non-combat soldier. And I cheated as an 18 year old does because you're an idiot and you don't know the consequences of it. Eventually I became a tank commander and I was the eyes of a tank, which is an interesting thing to be when you can't see. But I cheated on my eye exam. The experience as a soldier, despite all the crap that was thrown at us, but that sense that, I was protecting my mother. That for me is such a deep part of what I celebrate on Yom Atzmaut. You know, when you talk about how you could justify sending your kids, for me, the only way I could justify it is by um, lying to myself and assuming that they will be protected. But, but seeing your, your son, and, and I remember when he was in Gaza fighting, and I saw a photo of a tank, Amerikava, speeding along with the sound. That was his tank. It's this very out of box, but the dignity that you know, my son, just like me, and I'm, I'm sad that we have to, but you know, that's a big gift. That's a huge gift that, that Israel gave us. No, I had the same experience. My son was in a tank in Gaza and I couldn't make the, the distinction between, I, I couldn't pretend that he wasn't in danger. It breaks down during war. I know. Okay, but most of the time. Most of the time you can pretend, right? But you know, Danielle, actually listening to you, what you've clarified for me about the Israeli high holiday season is that for me, this is our cycle of gratitude. That's what this is. That's why the show up belongs. Let's go back to Yom Karon. You know, first of all, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of what I'm experiencing right now because I'm listening to you. So I want to thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit, forget a personal family. How do you understand the relationship 
between Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. Is it still necessary, do you think? And as I said, Doc, on a personal level, it's remarkable to feel the sense of gratitude, the sense of awareness uh, that a country embraces you with. But besides that, for the whole country as a whole, you know, today, the wars of massive casualties are, God willing, behind us. There's less families who are directly involved. What does the connection between the, not just to Yom HaTzmaut, but what does it do to the country, Yosef? What does it do to us as a people? And do you think it's positive? The model that comes to mind from Judaism is the fast day preceding Purim. It doesn't have the same rawness and immediacy as Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And uh, this, this entwinement, I think, is necessary. It's inevitable. And you gave the best justification for it. The fact that the country goes into the deepest mourning of the year. And Yom HaZikaron is a far deeper day of mourning than Yom HaShoah. And I didn't understand that until I made Aliyah. Because again, coming from a survivor family, I assume that in Israel, the day of deepest mourning was Yom HaShoah. And it's only once I joined this place that I realized, no, of course, of course not, because the graves are still being dug. This is happening now. Yom HaZikaron is, is not history. And so there's something, you know, in what you were saying a moment ago about how embraced you feel. The fact that we link Independence Day to Memorial Day is telling the families, in the words of the poet Nathan Alterman, we understand that we received this state on, uh, on a silver platter, and the silver platter are your children. It's giving that space in Independence Day to the ongoing sacrifice. My question, again, is whether we have the order backwards, whether we should be celebrating Independence Day, and then maybe a week later to complete the, the cycle. It doesn't have to be the next day or the day before. But within this time frame, this is the price that we continue to pay for our sovereignty. Yossi, let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. This past week, people all around the world commemorated Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year, the Shalom Hartman Institute introduced Heat Konsut to the North American Jewish community in an hour-long interactive ceremony of song, poetry, family history, and personal reflections. Conceptualized by author Professor Michal Govrin and Rabbi Dr. Rani Yeager, the Yom HaShoah Heat Konsut is a powerful new ritual that honors those who perished in the Holocaust while transforming memory into a deeply personal commitment to a eliminate all forms of dehumanization. You can watch a video recording of the event now at shalomhartman.org slash heatkansuit. Hi, Lana. Hi. I have to say I am I'm very moved by listening to both of you talk about your experiences. And even before we talk Torah, I want to throw in a word that I haven't heard here, but has been all over this conversation. And that word is redemption. The two of you have been doing your best in this conversation to turn a story that usually is about redemption into a story about gratitude. I'll say one word about what I mean. You know, when you have Yom HaZikaron, right before Yom HaTzma'ut, the reason it's before is because it's not just saying we're grateful for your sacrifice. We're also somehow trying to say the loss is redeemed. The senseless loss is redeemed through the continuation. But that's what I hate. I hate that. I hate that. Like as if his death makes, I, leave me alone. I get as far away from that as you can. Yes. 
And it's the same thing with the Shoah. The reason people do it is they say, in some ways, God forbid, we would never say that it doesn't redeem in that way, but there's a redemptive arc. And both of you are actually saying, that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. I want gratitude rather than thinking about this as a redemptive arc where the end completely erases the beginning or the beginning justifies the end. I think that is a brilliant and fascinating reshaping of this, even as I think there is redemption within this story, but I think you're pointing to the edges where it actually, it can be cruel or it can, it can minimize what the state of Israel is when it comes to Yom HaShoah. So that's the first thing I want to say. But now let's, let's talk some other Torah. I want to talk about different ways that we think in Jewish thought about conflicting experiences and conflicting times in life. Because I think there are two major ways we think about it, and I'm not sure people would put these two in dialogue, but I'm going to put them in dialogue. And the first one that I want to look at is I want to look at the model of conflicting experiences in life, really feeling discreet from each other, not blending into each other, but there are peaks and there are valleys. And sometimes you're at a peak and other times you're at a valley. And this is what life is. And that to me, when I think about where that is found in Jewish thought, I think about the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes chapter three, which of course the birds made famous, right? Everything has a season, la kolzman, and a time for every matter under the heavens. And then the verses go on to specify how there's a different time for the ups and a different time for the downs, a time to be born and a time to die. You're not born and dying at the same time. They're separate. A time to plant and a time to uproot what's planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to rip down and a time to build. And it goes on like this. And what's fascinating is that it doesn't say, and life is full of these things. It says there's a time for this and there's a time for that. And that's a life. And some scholars actually point out that if you look at these verses, some of the verses start with the positive, a time to be born and then a time to die. And some of them start with the negative, a time to kill and a time to heal. And you could walk through life and, and focus on the peaks and you could walk through life and focus on the valleys, right? But there's something about the power of recognizing that sometimes you just are having Yom HaZikaron. You just are having as its own day without anything else, right? And sometimes you should be having Yom HaZikaron by itself, but that's not the way Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaZikaron are built. They're not built on this La Colzman, everything has a time. It's built on a totally different model. And that other model actually comes from a legal way of thinking in Jewish thought. And, and I don't want to start with a text that's on paper. I want to start with a text that's in life, which is on Friday, I'm starting Shabbat. I'm getting ready. I have to start Shabbat by sundown. But on Saturday, I don't finish Shabbat till three stars come out. So what is this 25-hour day? And the reason we have Shabbat as a 25-hour day is because I understand when day is, day is sun up to sundown. I understand when night is, night is when it's dark outside until morning. But what's that time in between sundown and when it's dark outside? What is that twilight time that is, is it day? Is it night? So that twilight time, we have a legal definition for it. We have a legal term for it. It's called Ben Hashmashot, literally between the suns. And that time, the Talmud in Shabbat 34b says the following. The rabbis taught Ben Hashmashot, between the suns, is a doubt whether it's from day, maybe part of it is daytime, part of it is nighttime, maybe all of it is daytime, maybe all of it is nighttime. 
So we treat it sometimes like day and sometimes like night. So on Friday, the time between sundown and when it's dark outside, I treat it like it's night already. I treat it like it's Shabbat. And on Shabbat, between sundown and when three stars come out, I treat it like it's still day and I keep it as Shabbat. Now to me, Yom Azikaron and Yom Atzma'ut are Be'en HaShemashot. It is creating one day that is made of conflict. And when commentators discuss what Be'en HaShemashot is, some of them talk about how Be'en HaShemashot, it's one or the other. It really is either day or night. We just don't know which one it is. And you know, Danielle, the way you're describing it sounds like, and I would never presume, it sounds like for families who have lost Yom Atzma'ut and Yom Azikaron, it's all Yom Azikaron. And I'll tell you, as an American, Yom Azikaron, Yom Atzma'ut, it's all Yom Atzma'ut. It's not a hybrid. It, the, the celebration takes over and we kind of, we lose it often, the Yom Azikaron piece. But there's another way of looking at it, which is not that one should completely overshadow the other, but there's a hybrid. And I want to give you one, one last text to think about together, which is a text that is not coming from a legal paradigm, but is using a legal paradigm, which I always think is so gorgeous, use a, a legal paradigm to think philosophically and emotionally and psychologically about how life works. And so in Pirkevot, Ethics of the Ancestors, there is just this gorgeous Mishnah that describes Ben Hashmashot, not as a time of safek doubt, I'm not sure which one this is, and different people will give her different overlays because of their experiences or because of what day it is. But it's both. And here it goes. Perkei Avot, Ethics of the Ancestors, Chapter 5, Mishnah 6. Ten things were created on the eve of Shabbat in creation at twilight, right? So are the six days of creation over or are they still continuing until it's nighttime and God rests? And here are the ten things. The mouth of the earth that swallows Korach and his group. The mouth of the well. Some people say this is the rock that Moses hit and water comes out. Some people say this is Miriam's well. The mouth of the donkey that speaks to Bilam. The rainbow at the end of the flood. The manna that falls from heaven. The staff of Moses that can conduct miracles. The shamir, a special worm that could literally eat through stone and they used to construct the clothing of the high priest. The letters on two tablets on the luchot. The writing, the difference between the letters and the writing, so a lot of commentators. But either way, what we're talking about here is revelation, revelatory writing. And the tablets themselves, the luchot of the Ten Commandments themselves. And some people say also demons and some people, what is this list of 10? This list of 10 are 10 things that are both Shabbat and creation. They're natural and they're supernatural at the same time. The donkey is a donkey, but it talks. It's natural and it's supernatural. The rainbow is just a rainbow, but it's not just a rainbow. It's an indication of God's covenant with the world. And that to me, and I know I always experienced this, as an American kid and then someone who worked in synagogues, the time when we did Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ut, as Yom HaZikaron was ending and as Yom HaTzma'ut was beginning, we do what we call a tekes ma'avar. You do a bridging kind of ritual. And that that was Be'en HaShemashot, but it's not just that's Be'en HaShemashot because it's a little of Yom HaZikaron. The whole thing is Be'en HaShemashot. And in some ways, it's kind of saying Israel is Be'en HaShemashot. It's a hybrid of the triumph and the pain, it is a hybrid there. The gratitude, the way that you're trying to 
frame it as gratitude is kind of your way, the two of you of trying to hold both of those without trying to erase either of them. Beautiful. Ilana, I love this model of Ben Hashmashot, but it's the difference between rabbinic life and Israel in a certain sense, that what was created in that beautiful text from Pirkei Avot that you quoted, the Ben Hashmashot is the time for the unnatural, for the supernatural. Normal life wasn't created in this between the suns. It was these marginal aberrations of some real life was, was in the daytime or in the nighttime. And I think part of the challenge that we face here, and as you said, it's different in America. And by the way, there's no fault. You can't experience Yom Azikaron from six to 10,000 miles away. It's not your fault. It's it just is. It's like, oh, why can't you? You can't. There's not a single family in Israel which doesn't have someone who it knows, like, which is zero to deg- one degree of separation at most. So it's a different thing. But what happens when Ben Hashmashot is not where the supernatural or the exceptional is created, but it's your life? <laughs> Could you have all of life? Is it too heavy? I remember when we made Aliyah, you know, my parents, especially my father, my mother had this guttural love for Israel. It just came from the deepest part of her soul. She just loved it. It's a Jewish state. It's my home. You know, my father had all these conceptual ideas of where Judaism is meeting the marketplace. And I you know, it was like, it was all, and then he goes to a Yom mode celebration. And as you go downtown, they have these crazy hammers. You know, on, on Purim, you have a grager. On Pesach, you have matzah. On Yom Matzmot, you have this crazy plastic hammer, which, which beeps, and we knock it, it gets knocked on. He says, like, what does this have to do with Yom Matzmot? Maybe you really, the Israelis say, I can't live in Ben And I don't know. Again, it's not a challenge, because in many ways, you're right. Yom Azikaron and Yom Matzmot are trying to paint Israel as Ben Whether Whatever Ben it is. But I don't know if we can live in that. And maybe the reverse order that Yossi is speaking about will enable us to be a little more ecclesiastical. So my question will be a time for rebirth, whether you actually have to What would it look like to have? And I'm not just talking about the days here, right? When can you have the unadulterated, where you're not trying to redeem, and you're not? It's really just we're sad. This is terrible. And then when can you have just the unadulterated? And I would say, yeah, hit people on the head with hammers. It's hilarious and it's fun and it's crazy and it's wacky. Benash Mashot is every day. Every day has a Benash Mashot. You need both of these. How do you do that in ritual, but also how do you do that in life? I agree with you. And I'll just end with this. I remember I was once having this really like religious crisis personally. And my Saba, my grandfather, a blessed memory, he's the patriarch. He was the person I would always go to. And I call Saba, I'm 18 and I'm zhuzhing and I'm this and I'm that. And I'm, what about this? And what about that? But this, but that. And Saba says, just don't think so much. Just stop thinking so much. And I was like, that's a cop out. But there is something that's kind of what you're saying, which is it's forcing attention. We don't want all the time. I know maybe, you know, these high holidays, maybe another idea behind them is that they're really trying to make our existence here thick, thoughtful, complicated. You know, it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense when you create it, but maybe makes a lot less sense when you have to live it because it makes all the sense in the world conceptually. But whether people could live in Ben Hashemashot or not is a question. Is that the highest form or is just being able to let go and, and celebrate? It's one of the great 
difficulties and one of the most noble parts of Israel. Maybe that's one of our deepest struggles and tensions. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Kelman and edited by Ronit Morris. And music is provided by Sokol. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at forheavenssake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Yossi, Ilana, first Chag Sameach, and just beautiful. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you.